Bring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. great to be with you. Um, you ought to keep your Bibles open uh, to Second uh, Peter, if you will. Um, before I begin, I just wanted to mention my wife uh, would love to be with me today, Claire, but she's serving in children's ministry back at our church at Covenant Life Church, so uh, she couldn't be with us. But it's always a joy to come to Christ Church, Mount Airy, uh, because uh, I think I've mentioned this in the past, uh, the very first church I served at was Christ Church of Washington, D.C. on Mass Avenue, and so I always liked that name, Christ Church, and um, when uh, in the 1980s we were sent out to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to plant a church there, it wasn't named Christ Church, but in just about every other way it's much like this church. Um, just a lot of down-to-earth people, a little bit of a rural setting. We met in a room quite like this for a number of years, and so it always brings back memories. And I think the first time I came to preach at your church, I asked you to excuse me because my plaid flannel shirt was at the cleaners, <laughs> so <clears throat> I had to wear a suit. No. Uh, the reason I wear a suit is because, uh, to me, the proclamation of God's word is a very serious and a rather formal thing. I take God's word seriously as I know you do, and I don't want to distract from it in any way. So um, I feel comfortable here, and I am grateful for Matt and for this church. Uh, this church was planted out from Covenant Life Church many years ago, and so we feel a real 
bloodline connection. As we uh, begin this message today, I just wanted to um, talk about it a little bit in general. This text of Scripture combines a couple of things. It combines some spiritual knowledge about the end of the world and the judgment of God. At the beginning, in the middle, and the end of this passage, there's reference to something called the promise of God. Scoffers will say, where's the promise of his coming? But Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. And then at the end, according to his promise, we're waiting for something, a new heavens and a new earth. But there's a lot of things that's going to happen in regard to these end time issues. And that's what these are, end time issues. Or if you prefer the theological term, these are eschatological matters. They have to do with final things, the things of the end. These are heavy matters. As a matter of fact, there is a lot in this that is terrible in the true sense of that word, meaning awesome, dreadful, even frightening. And uh, I hope I can do justice to this. But this whole matter of judgment comes in. We're going to be talking about the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, that day, that great and terrible day of the Lord. And with regard to judgment, that's not something that our culture likes to think about. As a matter of fact, the idea of judging someone is, is a terrible thing. Judge not that you be not judged. Even people who aren't Christians seem to know that verse. But with regard to judgment, it's a very important and central aspect of all of God's dealings. As a matter of fact, you could sum up the entire message of the Bible by saying that salvation has to do with God's glory through judgment. The words of Rudyard Kipling, a British poet and author of over 100 years ago, you may have heard these lines, east is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. It was thought back in those days that you couldn't get more apart than the east is from the west. That was a British colonial talking. But there's one thing that's in common, whether you're from the east or from the west, whether you're from Asian culture or African culture or North American culture, one thing that's going to be common to all men, and that is the fact of judgment. When Peter begins this letter, he is at a place where he is nearing death. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. That's in the first chapter of this letter. And so this is what's known as a farewell letter, a farewell address. He knew his time on earth was drawing to a close. His time of departure was at hand. The Lord had made it clear to him that he was going to die. 
We find that at the end of the Gospel of John and that his death would be a violent death. Remember, Jesus told him, when you're old, men are going to bind you and they're going to take you where you do not want to go. And according to a very strong tradition, Peter did die a violent death. He was crucified. Um, but what concerns him at this point is not what's going to happen to him. He wrote this letter so as to help these people. He said, it's the second letter I'm writing to you now, beloved, and in both of them I'm trying to stir up your sincere minds by way of reminder so that you remember some things. He wanted to help them. I'm uh, uh, playing on the back nine myself. I'm in my 70s now, and I know that my departure is a lot closer than it used to be. And so I think about things. I think about my children. I think about my grandchildren. I think about the things that I have, what I want to give to the kids in terms of family heirlooms and things like that. That's what happens when you get older, right? Uh, but there is a spiritual sense in which those that are older want to benefit those that are going to be hanging around. And so that's what Peter is doing here. He wanted to help them because he knew he wasn't going to be around probably to see what was going to happen. He wanted them to remember certain things. To remember what? Well, he wanted them to remember the writings of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through his apostles. Now the predictions of the holy prophets we have in the Old Testament. The commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ is what we have in the New Testament. So in a certain sense, even though the canon of the New Testament scripture was not complete at this time, Peter basically wanted them to remember their Bibles. And of course, that's really good advice. He wanted them to know their Bible, read their Bible, remember and obey scripture. The writings of the Old Testament prophets, the commandments of the Lord that come to us through his apostles like Peter. That's great advice. Because the writings of the Old and New Testament, God's word, they tell us what we need to know in order to survive and to thrive, to live lives pleasing to God. In his first letter, Peter said this. He said, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And he wanted them to remember what in particular? The promise of his coming. That's what he wanted them to remember. The promise of his coming. Peter wanted them to remember these things concerning the last days. And you find that phrase in verse 3 of chapter 3 that we read. It talked about the last days. Days. And that phrase, the last days, you probably heard it before. It actually represents a pretty long period of time, the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The last days actually began on the day of Pentecost, and they continue to this day. We are in the period called the last days. We're currently living in the last days and perhaps the last of the last days because you see Christians believe this we believe that Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant to die for our sins 
Then after dying, he rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven where he sits right now at the right hand of the throne of God. But there is a time in the future when Jesus will come again the second time. This time not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king. He's going to come to judge the world and fully establish the kingdom of God. He inaugurated the kingdom of God. He's brought that kingdom, that rule and that reign of God that comes into the lives of you and me when we willingly bow the knee and submit to Jesus Christ as our Lord. The rest of the world doesn't see this, but we do see this. We see Jesus as Lord. Now, he's not exercising that lordship fully over everything right now, even though he, in fact, is the king of all. We worship him. We sing to him. We can't see him, but by faith, we acknowledge him as our king. But when Jesus comes the second time, that coming will not be the way it was the first time, born as a baby in great humility, but Jesus' second coming will be cataclysmic. His coming will be universal in the sense that it will be known and seen by all. As it says in Revelation 1-7, the Lord, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail because of him. Why will they wail because of him? Well, as Jude says in his letter, he will come. And when he comes, he will come with ten thousands of his holy ones, that is angels. Why? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude has a way with words, doesn't he? I think you get his point. Jesus coming back is going to have something to say about ungodliness. And as we read in our text today, Jesus' second coming is going to be attended by violent and sudden change. Cataclysmic, celestial, terrestrial, upheaval. It's literally going to be earth-shattering. And if that wasn't enough, the second coming of the Lord is going to coincide with something called the day of judgment. As the creed says, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So when Jesus comes again, he will close out this present age, this present world order. He will bring the last days to an end. But right now, we are living in the last days. And that's why Peter's writing the letter. He's writing it to people that he refers to as exiles, elect exiles, scattered among the nations. How are we to see ourselves? We are evangelical Christians. Now that term has become politically charged these days, but in the old days to say evangelical just meant we're gospel people. Epangelia is the promise, and evangelion is the Greek word for gospel. We get evangelism from it. So when we call ourselves evangelical, we're gospel-centered people who believe the promise 
that God brings. How are we to see ourselves? Well, we're to see ourselves as exiles, as sojourners, kind of the way Abraham was. He didn't really come into the land of promise. Uh, We're to see ourselves as those Jews that were in exile in Babylon. Well, we're in this world. We're not of this world. We have a part to play in this world of of light and and blessing to others, but... um, This world is not really our home, not in the sense that it exists right now. So we can feel a little bit uneasy with what's going on, maybe subject to persecution, maybe the culture changing so rapidly around us, maybe it's freaking you out. Certainly gets us rattled, doesn't it? Well, Peter has some things to say about this that he wants us to know. And so we'll cover really four things. I'll just tell you what they are in advance. He has some things to say about scoffers and scoffing. He has some things to say about God and time. He has some things to say about fire and judgment and new heavens and a new earth. So first of all, scoffers and scoffing. He says, in the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. That makes sense. It's what they do. Haters will hate. Scoffers will scoff, right? Okay. And this is what they'll say. This will be the substance of their scoffing. Where is the promise of his coming? Now, it's a question, but there's a sneering attitude behind that question, isn't there? They question the promise of his coming. Promise of whose coming? Of Jesus, his second coming. They question it, but it's not an honest question It's filled with doubt, the kind of skepticism and cynicism. These are not the doubts of sincere believers. Sometimes we have doubts and questions, but there's a difference between sincere believers who are saying, I don't understand, help me. And someone says, ha, where's the promise of his coming? Now, these people are deniers of the promise. They deny the promise of their coming. And in verses 3 and 4, it's because they're following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, this is their reason for denying it. The reason for denying it with scoffing is they're morally compromised. It's because of their own sinful desires. If we were to read chapter 2 of 2 Peter, we'd see this in spades. He talks about these sinful Uh, ungodly people. Uh, They're following their own sinful desires. They're following their own lusts. And and for them, the whole idea of Jesus coming back, especially Jesus coming back as judge, is a very inconvenient truth. When Jesus comes back, he's going to judge the world in righteousness. And if you're following your own lusts, your own sinful desires, as these scoffers are, Jesus coming back in judgment is not a happy thought. And these scoffers... They have an argument, and their argument, at first glance, seems pretty sound. It's from the beginning of creation, everything continues as it always has. The sun rises, the sun sets, and guess what's going to happen tomorrow? The same thing. That's the way it's always been, that's the way it is, and that's the way it will be. The science is in. The world is a closed system. 
God cannot intervene. And Peter says to this, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, that's not right. He says they deliberately, they intentionally, they willfully neglect this fact. In verses 5 through 7 again. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Everything continues as it always has. Oh, really? Well, there was a time when God first created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. He formed them out of water and through water by the word of God. And that's a reference to Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Peter's referring to that, and he talks about that as the world that was. And he says, just as that first world was brought into being, or as we say, created, and also sustained by the word of God, so this present world is also being sustained or kept by that very same word. But just as that first world, the world that was, was destroyed by a flood, so the world that now is, this present world, will also be destroyed, only this time not by water, but by fire. And then he says after that, later in this passage, there's going to be a new recreated world order that will appear. A new heavens and a new earth. So you got the world that was, you got the world that is, and the world that will be. Everything continues as it always has. Oh, really? A closed system? Oh, God doesn't intervene in history? He doesn't? Well, not exactly. As a matter of fact, not at all. God once intervened and created the world. God again intervened and judged the world with a flood. And the world, as it now exists, we are told, is being kept. It's being stored up for a purpose. And what is that purpose? The day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, there have been other judgments in history. Scripture talks about the judgment, of course, the time of the flood with Noah. There was the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was the judgment of Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. And there are other judgments. Um, there is a, uh, um, a theologian, Theo Price, that said we should see uh, in the storms of history the judgments of God foreshadowing the last judgment, and in temporary deliverances, the signs of the coming kingdom. But there's also the last judgment, which relativizes our poor human judgments and puts them in their place. It is alone our great consolation that one day the men and the things of the world will be allocated to their true position and a new earth will at last know the meaning of justice. I mean, when you look around and consider world history, um, in the 1700s, there was the great Lisbon earthquake. 
Google it sometimes, read about it. It's amazing. I mean, talk about a major earthquake. This one killed thousands of people, and it wasn't just all at once. I mean, it's just, it's just an amazing thing. The people in those days looked at that as a judgment of God. Um, the cholera epidemics of the early 1800s, um, other judgments. I mean, look at... Uh, how are we supposed to look at these terrible things that happen, sometimes when they happen all at once? People who read their Bibles and who know that God is actually in charge of everything, they're maybe reading current events a little bit different than others. What, what is God doing here? What was that whole COVID thing about? And some people say, well, do you think the United States is going to be judged? And I would say, well, I think we already have been. I think we already are. Civil War was a judgment. 63 million aborted children. That sounds like a judgment. I mean, this is going on all the time. As we read current events, we have to see that God is... But it's not just in judging. He's also showing deliverance. You know what happened in the flood? The main thing is that there was the preservation of a godly seed in Noah and his family. They actually experienced salvation through judgment, and it's all for the glory of God. Now, this is not exactly how we always like to look at things. This whole issue of judgment seems like, you know, ooh, God judging. I, I don't like to think about that. But why did Jesus then die on the cross? Ah, that was judgment of God on our sin, wasn't it? That was God himself taking the penalty of judgment that was due to us on himself. No, judgment is a fact of spiritual truth that we have to come to grips with. The world that now exists, we are told, is being stored up for a purpose, and that purpose is the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. As I said, this is fearful, this is dreadful, this is frightening. But Peter said something in chapter 2 that I would like to call your attention to. In chapter 2, verse 9, the Scripture says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from judgment. The Lord knows how to save Noah. The Lord knows how to deliver Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. The Lord knows how, and the Lord is glorified in delivering his people. He knows how to save his people. If you know the Lord, if you walk with the Lord, you're going to be all right. But the scoffers, the mockers, they not only the question the promise of his coming, they also question God's timing. It's God's apparent slowness to keep the promise that calls forth their mocking. Peter says, if, Peter, if what you say, say is true, then, then why the delay? If it's a promise... Why isn't God keeping it? What's taking so long? Why hasn't this happened? And that's because they misunderstand, and we often also misunderstand the relationship between God and time. And so that's the, the second point here, God and time. There's a big question 
that we ask sometimes, what is time? There's another question that we ask all the time, and that's, what time is it? <laughs> Those are two very different things. If you ask me, Augustine said, about time, I don't know. If you don't ask me, I know. I know what time is if you don't ask me, but if you ask me about it, I don't know. I mean, isn't it funny, time? What time is it? Oh, yeah, it's right. But what is time? Boy, it's a deep subject. By the way, uh, mentioning Augustine, um, I, I often like to get this in if I can. Have, how many of you have read the Confessions of St. Augustine? Oh, go to the head of the class. The rest of you, I, I'm sorry, but you're culturally illiterate. I say this to your shame. You have to read the Confessions of Augustine. If you've read the Bible, then that's the first thing. But you read Augustine's Confessions because this will be, you'll be reading about yourself, uh, really. It's a classic, and remember Mark Twain's definition of a classic, it's a book everybody wants to have read, but nobody wants to read. <laughs> well, don't let that be true of you. You can read the Confessions of Augustine, and his autobiography in the first nine books is fascinating. But then there are a few more books, uh, 10 through 13, where he gets into philosophical matters and he talks about things like memory. You know, why is it that you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you start thinking about that song that when you were in junior high school you used to think and, and sing and, and it comes back to you and where did that come from? Somewhere stored in the caverns of memory. It has something to do with time. What Augustine does is he goes into these things in greater depth than you and I do and he actually thinks and then he writes about what he thinks and all of a sudden you're drawn into the truth that wow the world that God has created is a whole lot more wonderful than me just doing the day by day and you get drawn into this sense that wow God is great I am not and my salvation depends on knowing him so let's go a little deeper. Anyway, I, that, I, I digress for a moment. Here's the point. Look. Verses 8 through 10. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. All right. Peter says God is not slow. He says he's patient. In other words, God's perspective on time is different from ours. We are time-bound. God is not time-bound. God transcends time. He straddles it, as it were. He is over and above time because he created time. He's the one who was and who is and who is to come. He's the Alpha and the Omega. It's all under his purview. Nevertheless, even though he's above and beyond time, he's not ignorant of our time constraints. He's very comfortable operating in time. In other words, besides being transcendent, he's also imminent. He's above and beyond, but he's also here and now. 
So when it said here that the, with the Lord a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day, that word as tips us off that this is a simile that Peter's trying to describe by analogy what this deep mystery of time really is. And that phrase, thousand years is a day, day is a thousand years, comes from Psalm 90, right? The Psalm of Moses in which the eternal God is compared to men and women, boys and girls like you and me. And what are we like? We're like a shadow. We're like a breath. We're like a vapor. We're like a mist. We're ephemeral. We appear for a little while and then we're gone. That's what we are compared to God. So our salvation is in knowing Him and being united with Him by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. But when it comes to these things a long time and a short time, well, a long time for me might be a short time for God. And whether a period of time seems long or short, that depends on who you are. It depends on your vantage point. I mean, just think about it. When I was a child, it seemed like a year took forever. And I'd say, Mom, when's my birthday coming? Oh, it's a long time from now. Several months. And I remember when I finished the first grade, it seemed like it took forever. And then we had summer vacation. And then what's after that? The second grade. Oh, no. How many grades are there? Twelve, gra Twelve grades. I got to go to school for. I didn't like school. I go to school forever. Oh. And now, the years just go by so fast. Boom, 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 boom. You look outside and you say, oh, if there's snow on the ground, I guess it must be winter. You know, it's like, well, what's going on? What's your vantage point? Time seems a lot slower when you're a little kid waiting for Christmas or your birthday. It seems a lot faster when you're getting old. The years fly by. I can't even keep track. But the point here is that the promise of Christ's return might seem like it's taking a long time. But God is not slow as some count slowness. No, God's not in a hurry either. He's not poking along. He is, by definition, always right on time. And if it seems like God is playing the long game, well, yes, He is. Because, and you must not mistake this for slackness. It might seem like delay, but it's not slackness. It's not indifference. It's not neglect. No, it's actually something called patience. He's wanting all to come to repentance. God does not wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Paul said something similar. He said, do you presume on the riches and kindness of God's grace and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What might seem like delay, what might seem like slowness, yeah. the Lord will come. And when he does come, when the day of the Lord does come, it will be sudden, Peter says, like a thief. Unexpected. Unexpected for most. Not for you and me, because we're reading our Bibles and believing them, right? It's not going to come upon us in that way. Or at least I hope it doesn't. Not if we're paying attention. 
Because then what's going to happen is fire and judgment. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The day of the Lord, the day of God, the day of judgment, the last day, the great day, the great and terrible day of the Lord will be attended by cosmic upheaval. It'll be catastrophic. It'll affect everything. The heavens, the atmosphere, the heavenly bodies, the stars, the planets, and of course the earth and everything in it. This means destruction, dissolution, and it will be by fire. Remember, God promised never to judge the world again by a flood. But this will be by fire. As I said a little bit earlier, this is dreadful, this is fearful, this is frightening. But remember, especially kids, remember, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So if you belong to God, you will be fine. But, you know, interestingly, in our culture... This is not found incredible at all. As a matter of fact, end-of-the-world stuff is everywhere. A giant meteor hits the earth, causing unbelievable destruction. I went to a website called the 100 Best Disaster Apocalyptic and Post-Apocalyptic Movies. The best 100? Out of how many? It's like, oh, no, all this stuff, this, this is great. This is standard fare. Our culture is used to this. Now, what it finds incredible, however, is the ethical dimension that there's going to be judgment attached to this. That this is going to be a day of judgment. The day of the Lord, including the judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Chapter 3, verse 7. It's the idea that God would judge people. That he would evaluate their actions, their words, their motives. How dare he judge? That's not God's job. He's a God of love. He's supposed to forgive. He's supposed to make people happy, isn't he? That's a very, very limited and lopsided view of God. Now, God is love. But God is also light. That means he's holy. And so this brings us now to the final point here about a new heavens and a new earth. Verses 11 and verse 13, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people, Peter asks, are you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which, what dwells? Righteousness. Those words, holiness, godliness, righteousness. Do you see the ethical dimension? So because of all this, Peter calls us to live holy and godly lives. Because the new heavens and the new earth will be characterized by righteousness. The kingdom of God will be righteous. And we should be too. 
kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not a matter of material things at all, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, by the way, these two words, righteousness, justice, you, you hear them, they're actually very, very close. They're almost synonymous, uh, both in Hebrew and in Greek. The same Greek word, the same Hebrew word can be translated either righteousness or justice, but there is actually a shade of difference between them, FYI. Righteousness is rooted in the moral quality of God who establishes right order, what's right and wrong. Justice is the moral quality that restores that right order when it's broken. So we talk about justice being done if God's order of rightness is broken for some reason. So you see, they're, they're very similar. For, for anyone who has been the victim of injustice, for anyone who's ever been grieved because of injustice in a fallen world, the reality of the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in judgment against all ungodliness should be a great consolation. See, when, when Jesus comes back, he's going to right every wrong. Doesn't it make you burn sometimes when you see innocent people being targeted and, and there doesn't seem to be any justice? Well, when Jesus comes, he's going to right all wrongs. He's going to be able to bring all argument and debate to an end. God has promised to judge the world in righteousness by, by Jesus Christ, the man, the God-man whom he appointed for this great task. Jesus is uniquely and perfectly suited to judge mankind because he's the son of man. In his own humanity, he submitted himself to the sinful, corrupt, and unjust judgment of man. The trial, the judgment, the condemnation, and the execution of Jesus Christ was the greatest demonstration of injustice that the world has ever seen. And Jesus, you see, willingly submitted himself to that unjust judgment because he came the first time to die not for his sins, he had none, but for yours and mine. So if anyone ever had the right to say it's not fair, it was Jesus, the sinless Son of God. And if anyone ever had the right to sit in judgment on others, it is Jesus Christ. So Jesus will return now to judge the living and the dead. And he is perfectly suited to do this. And everyone who truly loves justice will find great consolation in the fact of the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. The consolation will only be experienced by those who realize that their own greatest need is not for justice, but for mercy. See, when I was a boy, I was bullied. And it was bad. And I could tell you about it, and you'd really feel sorry for me. But then I thought a little bit more about it, and I remembered times when I bullied others. I mocked others. And 
it took the help of the Holy Spirit to remind me of some of those things. What am I saying? I'm saying that victims can also be those who victimize others. Hmm. Well, we don't like to do that. No, we like to have categories of people that we, this is a category of victim, and this is the category of oppressor. There's the oppressed and the oppressor, and if you happen to belong to a large group that gets labeled oppressed, then you get a pass. But oppressors, oh, well, we don't like oppressors. Problem is, if you want to see an oppressor, just look in the mirror sometime, because it's just another way of saying sinner. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, as a matter of fact, when Jesus comes, he'll come with a perfect judgment. And so there won't be consolation for anybody who has not acknowledged his own sin and seen his own need of a Savior. And if you deny this, if you say, well, I don't need that sort of thing, basically you're saying, I don't need a Savior. Do you really want to say that? When people talk about wanting justice, it's usually for the other guy, not for themselves. I think I told, maybe I told it here, the story. I'm driving on the Pennsylvania Turnpike between Lancaster and Philadelphia, and some guy blows past me. I'm still going 9,500 miles an hour. I said, oh, God, send a state trooper. <laughs> a little bit later down the road, I kind of drifted up in my speed and maybe got up to about 80, and oh, there's the state trooper. Oh, God, have mercy. <laughs> Why do we think like that? It's because we're prone to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. That's just how we're constructed. But if we see that justice, oh, God is impartial. He's no respecter of persons. You may want others to pay for their sins, but who will pay for yours? There's no partiality with God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin are death. And those wages must certainly be paid. My friends, we need to see ourselves first and foremost as those who are in need of the mercy of God and give thanks to God for his justice and what he has done in Jesus in sending him to pay the penalty we all deserve because we are all responsible for Christ's death. And if we are going to be fitted out to live as citizens in a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, we're going to need our Savior to clothe us with that robe of righteousness. Only Jesus can do that because only Jesus has purchased that righteousness at the cost of his own blood. And how do we receive? We receive it through faith. Now, I have no doubt that most here have come to that place where they've acknowledged their sin and their need for a Savior and trusted in Him. But it's never safe to assume that of everybody. So whether you're young or you're old, this is the gospel message. Christ died for our sins. And Christ rose from the dead. That's the gospel. That simple gospel message can be believed by a young child. And... Its profundity can never be understood fully even when we meditate on it for years and years. It's an inexhaustibly deep, rich source of grace and mercy. 
by believing the gospel that Jesus lived for you and died for you and rose for you. If you believe that simple message, you will be saved. And so then when in Revelation 21, we see these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is the promise of his coming. So let not your hearts be troubled. It's a fallen world, and we experience the effects of it in our own lives and the dislocations that come to us and the things that are just, just plain hard. But there is a time coming when God will right all wrongs. He came the first time as a suffering servant to die for our sins. He'll come the second time as a conquering king to set everything in order. Right now, we're living between the ages. We're living in the last days. It can be very uncomfortable. The reason why you're not as comfortable in the world as you might like to be is because this is not your home. You were never meant to be perfectly comfortable here, but you can have a righteousness and a peace and a joy in the Holy Spirit as a citizen of the kingdom of God. It comes through trusting in Jesus. So let's commit our hearts to him. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the words of truth. And as Peter was about to depart this world and wanted to remind the people that he was writing to of things that would help them, he talked about the promise of your coming and the patience of God and the kindness of God who sent a Savior to die for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. And Lord, even though these fearful things are coming and it can make us a little worried ourselves, I pray that you would remind the dear people here that you know how to deliver the godly from trials. You know how to preserve us unto your heavenly kingdom. And that if we trust in you and hope in you and believe in you and cling to you, we will have rest in you. So bless and comfort your people. Strengthen them for the journey that still lies before them. Help them not to be afraid of what goes on in the world, but to trust in you. We look forward to your coming, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.